Hello there, and welcome to KDL's Stump the Librarian podcast, where friendly neighborhood librarians put their research skills to the test to answer questions from you, the listener, or your pet goldfish, your neighbor three houses down, your best friend, or really anyone that has a question. I'm Courtney. I'm one of the librarians you will be trying to stump. I'm here with Emily. Hi. And Jill. Hello. And friends, it's our last podcast of this season, but that also means that summer is coming. It's just weeks away before summer wonder starts, so make sure when June starts, you go into your local KDL library and you get your summer wonder reading log and you get started on reading for at least 20 minutes every day for at least 30 days. You can certainly do more, but... Emily, what are you looking forward to about this summer? Because we're in person again. Um, I am most excited to have teen volunteers back in the library. Um, So if you are a teen, know a teen, um, and want something fun to do, you can come volunteer for your local KDL library. Uh, The applications will come out the very beginning of May. So you can pick one up at your local library, fill it out, and bring it on back in. Jill, what are you looking forward to? A lot of things, but we... Um, we do a carnival. I think a lot of branches do a carnival, but I'm in charge of it at Wyoming and it's just really fun. Mm -hmm. I love it. And we do just fun games and I I think we have some special surprises this year. So check out our branch calendar. Come see us at Wyoming. Super fun. I am most excited for one of my favorite, um, summer performers, Tom Plunkard to be back. So Tom is beloved at KDL because he lives in Florida, but he comes back to Michigan for the summers to do magic shows at our branches. And he is just the nicest man. And I'm really excited to have him back in the buildings, but let's get down to business. We've got some great questions. Jill, what's question numero uno? Okay. Our first question is from Beckett at our Walker branch. And Beckett asks, why is the sky so blue? That is a fabulous question, Beckett, and I think it's one that every person who has the use of their sense of sight has asked at one point or another. You always look up and you're like, why is it so blue? And why is it blue and not any other color? Um, Well, or why is it usually blue? Because as we know, sometimes it's not always blue. But anyways. But as we move into summer, we're going to see more blue more skies. blue skies. Yeah, and more yeah. skies, more, and not yeah. just clouds, not which just clouds. love Ooh. clouds, but we love a good blue sky. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, let's talk about light and colors. So the portion of the light spectrum that is visible to us is called the visible light spectrum, and it contains the segment of electromagnetic um, waves that the human eye is able to see, or to put it more simply, this range of wavelengths is known as visible light. So it's what we can see. Um, and the human eye can detect wavelengths from 380 to 700 nanometers. And those are where those color lights fall in. So violet has actually the shortest wavelength at around 380 nanometers. And red has the longest wavelength at around 700 nanometers. And their wavelength is measured from, um, I believe, peak to peak on the wavelength. So like, you know, when you're like drawing squiggles, like the closer your peaks are, the shorter your wavelength is. Um, And the light that comes from the sun, it actually usually appears white 
Um, I know we usually draw the sun as light as yellow and the temperature of the sun is actually what makes it appear that yellow color. So if the temperature on the surface of the sun was a different temperature. So if I think if it was higher, it would be red. Ooh. Um, but because it's the temperature that it is, it appears yellow. But the light coming from the sun appears to be white. And white light is actually a combination of all of the colors. And that's why sometimes when the white light, like sunlight hits prisms, you see a rainbow. Because all of those colors are contained within white light, um, which is really cool. Um, and when white, like I said, when white light shines through a prism, the light is separated into all of its colors. Um, and a prism is a specifically shaped crystal. Um, and when sunlight reaches Earth's atmosphere, it's scattered in all directions because there are gases and particles in the air. And it's actually blue light that is scattered in all directions by the tiny, teeny, tiny little molecules in the air, in the Earth's atmosphere. And it's scattered more than other colors because it travels at a shorter and smaller wavelength. So this is why we see the blue sky most of the time. As sunlight passes through it, it's scattered and then rescattered um, many, many, many times in the atmosphere. And what comes down to Earth is known as diffuse sky radiation. And actually, only one third of light is scattered. Um, and the smallest wavelengths of light tend to scatter the easiest. So that's why you appear blue. Um, that's why the sky seems blue. Now, what happens when the sun starts to set? So when we know when the sun sets, the sky no longer seems blue, right? Changes all sorts Changes of all sorts and colors. And- yeah. So as it appears, the sun appears to get lower in the sky. We know that the sun doesn't move. We're actually moving, but it appears to get lower. And the light that's passing through um as it's passing through more of the atmosphere to reach our eyes, the blue light is scattered more, even more than it was before. So it allows for those reds and yellows to pass straight through to your eyes. So at sunset and sunrise, because the angle at which the sunlight enters the atmosphere is significantly changed, most of those shorter wavelengths, so the blues and greens and purples, are scattered before even reaching the lower atmosphere. So we see those higher wavelengths um, more. So that's why it appears. So I answered two parts of your question, Becky. I hope that's okay um, because the sky is a beautiful thing. I have so many photos in my phone of sunsets and sunrises. I think in Michigan we are really spoiled with our sunsets and sunrises, especially if you live Close to that beautiful lake. Absolutely. There's lots of those. But Jill, do you have a fact for us? I do. And I know I showed you my last fact book, but I have to show you this one that too. That one is beautiful. Ooh, I like that one a lot. Giant sunbeam. And it's Appropriate. A, a, everything under the sun. <laughs> and this one is a curious question for every day of the year. So I tried to look at the fact for my birthday and it wasn't that great. Mm. So, I just found a random day. You know, you could have used one of our birthdays. No. That's fair. (laughs) And uh, here it is. The question is, can any animals do handstands? Mm. Oh. That's a good question. That's a great one. And the answer is that giant pandas do handstands. (gasps) I love pandas. They are silly, those pandas. I tell you what. I love them. But they they do these handstands to 
lean against the tree and then pee high up in the tree to mark their territory. <laughs> that's Can you imagine really, if that's why we did handstands? Yeah. That's what they so do. much work. <laughs> I would be is. like, you know what? You can have this tree. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel one. like doing it. But pandas, an interesting fact that I know about pandas, because they're one of my favorite animals. When they're born, they're like the size of a stick of butter. Baby pandas wow. are so small. They're and really they grow little. up to be so big. Mm-hmm. They do. It's all that bamboo. Yeah. I don't know. That, that might not be why. But they Probably. do eat bamboo. Yeah, they do so eat bamboo. They do. Contribute it to that. They do. All right. Well, what's our next let's question? Let's go on to the next question here. And it is also from Beckett. Beckett has some great questions. Yeah, from she sure does. And the question is, how do TVs work? Great Ooh. question, Beckett. I actually, even as an adult, think about this sometimes because even if I can understand how they work, the idea of TVs yeah. just blows my mind. I wish it was like in Willy Wonka where you could send yourself oh. through the TV. Yeah, like like Mike TV. Yeah, where he so gets good. shrunk down to size. Yeah. I wonder whatever happened to him. <sighs> He's little somewhere. <laughs> All right, Beckett. So you might not remember um, what a standard TV is. These were kind of before your time, but uh, your parents will remember and we all here remember. So we're going to start with standard TVs. So standard TVs were like big giant boxes with a screen on front. They were heavy. Their pictures weren't great, um, but they are what we grew up with. We loved them. So how does this clunky TV work? Well, for this type of TV, we have to start with the video camera because the camera records both the picture and the sounds of anything that will will eventually make its way to the TV. The camera and the microphone take the picture and the sound, and they turn them into separate electrical signals. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. That makes sense because there used to be, they like, talking pictures. Right. was, it, like, such a big thing. Exactly, because- yeah. Yeah, they, they have to become their own things, and then, like, the TV puts them back together, which is oh. wild. So the picture signals are sent through tiny dots called pixels, while the microphone sound is changed into what is called audio signals. These signals are received by the awaiting TV, um, and it turns them back into sound and pictures that go together. For digital TVs and phones and computers, and and probably more of the things that we're watching on today, like iPads and Mm -hmm. tablets and whatnot, pictures and sound are carried um, in number code, like like you hear about in computers. It can carry way more information than a standard signal can, which gives... Um, a much be- better picture and sound quality. So, Becca, you'll never have to deal with the poor quality of a standard TV. Um, but you signals lucky reach kid. <laughs> absolutely signals reach TVs in several ways. Whether it's a TV station antenna, through cable, satellite, through a DVD player, so that's like on your DVD, um, or through the internet. But how do we get that picture onto the screen? Like, what makes that? Work. We know that it's a signal and there's two different types of electrical signals, but like what is going on there? So, for the first 60 years of TV's crea- creations, um, they barely evolved. They were those clunky standard TVs. So um, heavy. So too. heavy, so big, very problematic, which we will talk about in many ways. Um, but th- these TVs had what was called a cathode ray tube or a CRT, which fired a stream of electrons onto the back of a fluorescent screen. And these, these tubes are quite large. So the parts of the screens that were hit by these electrons would glow. These glowing parts would come as parallel lines. Think of like lightsabers like going across your TV Ooh. screen. Yeah. Um, of electrons. And they would race across the, st- the screen. It would happen so fast, um, so many times per second, that our eyes would actually see it as one steady image. 
So our eyes are so talented. Our eyes and our brain. Oh. We're yeah, we're pretty great. We're great. Creatures. Um, but the problem was is that uh, because the these old TVs only had one electron gun. Um, way back in the day, uh, we could only see images in black and white. And then they advanced to colored standard, color standard TV, um, which had three different color streams, um, so three different tubes that had red, blue, and yellow, and they would hit the back of the fluorescent screen. And um, these primary colors would make up all the colors you would see on the screen. The problem is, is that as humans, we wanted bigger and better yeah. things, and that includes our TVs. So as time went on, um, more dynamic TVs uh, replaced the CRT standard TVs because not only were they big when they were small, but if you wanted the screen to be bigger, that means you had to increase like the oh, size of the yep. box, but also like the depth of the box due to the electron guns needing to be able to reach all of the corners of the TVs. The number of pixels a CRT could put out wasn't fast enough for the changing times. Um, so LCD and plasma TVs were invented and are able to create better pictures because they work in a different way than, than those old TVs. Um, they don't use tubes and electric beams um, as they do not have a CRT and therefore are much thinner and lighter than standard TVs. But um, what's inside of these TVs that make Ooh, them work? This, tell me. Yeah, this is probably what like we all have at home yeah. um, at this point. So... LCD stands for liquid crystal display. It is a substance that flows like a liquid and has some tiny little solid parts as well. The uh, the display sends light and electricity through the liquid crystals, call it, causing the solid parts to move around. And then the solid parts either like let in light or block light, and they kind of like form the picture, which still like is mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. um, but a plasma TV has tiny colored lights containing gas called plasma, that are electrically con um, conducive. So they contain um, ions, which are positive, and electrons, which are negative, and an electrical current is sent through the plasma, making um, these two crash into each other. Mm -hmm. And so that creates a light. And then they are coated. I don't remember what it's called that they're coated in, but they're coated in the substance that actually like gives you the actual color that you need. Mm -hmm. um, and then that is what creates the picture on your screen. So there's all these little um, ions and electrons crashing into each other, making the little lights that you need for your TV screen. So it's kind of a wild process. And even though I read through it a number of times, it, again, still yeah. blows my mind. <laughs> I still don't know how we were ever able to invent TVs in general or yeah. a lot of other stuff. Yeah, so. TVs have come, like, you know, in less than 100 years, they've come so far and I'm thinking about where my TV currently is um which is like up on the mantle above the fireplace mm -hmm. I would not have been able to fit a standard I don't know where I would have put a no. standard TV in my living no. room it would have to like take up one like whole corner of your living they room they were yeah. giant mm -hmm. and like super heavy um yeah and, and not great quality no yeah not not. <laughs> well and it's interesting to watch now so like I am one of those people that likes to watch shows over and over again. It's like comfort. Yeah. So um, I recently binged Criminal Minds. Oh. And so a lot of it was filmed in the early 2000s. But as you watch it, you can see the quality of even like what they use to record it. Yeah. Get so much better. Or if you watch like Golden Girls, <laughs> it's, it's such bad. Like the show, top quality. But the filming not, leave something to be desired, like the coloring and stuff like that. Yeah, it wasn't until like the early mid 
1900s that like they really started tvs really started to show up in homes and so like like i said they're the first like 60 years of tvs they weren't really making advances so that Mm -hmm. that you know that goes right up into when we were watching TV. Yeah, they we used to younger. listen. Imagine this if you only had our podcast to listen to and you couldn't watch TV. Oh. Because that's what they did. They that's had radio. Yeah. Um, you know, when our grandparents were growing up, they listened to things on the radio. And they would have, I don't know if they were called fully artists, but like they would have radio that like people would make like the sounds of like doors yeah. shutting and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not, not quite as much. Same. Much more like an audio book experience. Exactly. Than, like what we use the radio for now but you would have to catch it when it comes on yeah you couldn't couldn't just start and stop it whenever you wanted you had to sit down at the radio at a certain time and read it well that was mind-blowing i know like yeah great question beckett but i have some books to talk about and i'm actually going to talk about two books because they both are related to other episodes of the podcast that we've recorded so the first book that i'm going to talk about goes way back to episode I want to say it's three it's whale buffet Wednesdays and so in that episode we talk I talk about how when a whale dies in the ocean its body sinks down to the the very depths of the ocean Mm -hmm. and then it's just a buffet so this book is called whale fall cafe and it describes that phenomenon when I saw it I was looking for books to do book talks um for our Facebook page and I found this book and I was like this is literally the perfect book for me well one of the perfect it looks fantastic and and whales become such an important part of yes the life of those creatures down there they really do so as the whale falls through the different levels of the ocean different animals will eat it so like the you know the ones that are closer to the surface are the animals that we're more familiar with so like sharks and things like and barracudas will eat their part of the whale and then as it goes down and down and down different creatures will eat on it until it reaches the bottom where those ones that um hang out in the depths and i really like it that it's um the cover makes it look like a cafe so like the fishes are like um sitting at tables and eating as this giant whale is there's like a shark with a beret on yeah it's pretty great and so the illustrations are are really awesome um but then the other one is called battle of the butts the science behind animal behinds and as you know we've done two episodes now about farting um and so this uh, this book was also a must read and it goes through different animals that use their butts for different things um and it once you're done you get to decide who has the most powerful booty of them all so it talks about like we talked about how turtles um they breathe out of their butts but then i want to say it's um manatees actually swim using farts so, Which is um, clearly the most superior but Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to read and decide yourself. Yeah, but. You have to decide because there's some very interesting uses of booties in this book. But we've got one more question to answer. Jill, what's our last question? I mean, that was so fascinating. Do we even need another question? <laughs> I mean, I could, I could go through all of the booties in this book. It's, it, you got to check it out, man. Well, we have a Stump the Librarian first here. We have a question from a puppet. That's right. A question from Wimmy. We do. Wimmy. And the question is, who are some of the earliest puppeteers in Michigan? That's a great 
question. Um, first of all, puppetry is a very ancient form of theater. Um, it was first recorded in the 5th century BCE in ancient Greece, but some forms of puppetry likely existed way earlier. So puppetry is way older than Michigan. We are like a toddler compared, maybe not even a toddler, maybe like a newborn compared to puppetry if it's from like the 5th century BCE. Anyways, Michigan does have an important puppet history, however, and in the city of Detroit, you can visit the Puppet Art Museum and the theater where you can buy the book A History of Puppetry in Detroit, which is where much of today's information comes from. Um, Puppetry in Detroit dates back to the 1700s, and the first recorded show was staged in 1811. Um, puppetry was important there until it was banned in 1827 for being immoral. Wow. Man, I can't, I can't, I can't even <laughs> I'm like picturing uh, like Big Bird and Elmo. Right. All the outrage banned. there must have been. Um, but in the early 1900s, there was a revival of puppetry in the United States, and it was led by a puppeteer from Detroit named Paul McFarlane. Paul was a puppeteer, but his greatest contribution to the world of puppetry was as a writer, historian, and a collector. He brought the mystery of puppetry out of the shadows and educated people on puppetry through his publication, Puppetry Imprints. How many times can I say puppetry in one paragraph? Um, He also had one of the most important global collections of puppets. And when he died in 1948, his collection was donated to the Detroit Institute of Arts. And you can still see this collection there. And you can check out their YouTube videos, which include the making of some puppets. Oh, wow. That'll be in the show notes if you want to check that out. Um, McFarlane formed the Marionette Fellowship of Detroit in 1929. And in 1936, they held their first annual National Puppetry Conference Festival. Um, He even organized a puppet exhibition for the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, which we talked briefly about that in our last episode, I want to say. Yeah, Yeah, the 1839. There's there's been some interesting Chicago World Fairs. Yeah, lots of cool stuff. Um, Today, you can still check out Puppet Art in Detroit, and the Puppet Art Theater is working to bring puppetry back. So... Wimmy, you need to go check out the collection in Detroit to see and make some new friends. Um, But as to who the oldest puppeteers were in Michigan, well, there is some evidence that it might have been the Ojibwa or the Menominee people. Um, Puppets were common in Mexico among the Mayans and in southwest U.S. among the Hopi. Um, There is some evidence that the woodland people of Michigan had some puppets as well. Um, Ojibwa people had juggler dolls, and the Menominee had people figurines attached by strings to sticks. But Palma Barlin was an important part of early puppetry in Michigan, but there are so many more puppets before then. So this question may have stumped us a little bit, along with historians, because That's people right. did not keep as good of records. We found this out with ice cream. We could not deduce... Who invented ice cream? Because, you know, back in the day, they didn't write things down. Again, they didn't have Facebook to post about what they had for dinner or what puppet they made. Um, and they didn't have any throwback Thursdays. No, or they couldn't go back that. to that. So what's your favorite puppet, though? 
We're not, we're not going to include Wimmy because we, we always have, have to play favorites with Wimmy. But, like, thinking back to your childhood, like, Lamb Chop was a puppet. Sesame Street characters yeah. are puppets. Um, I always liked, like, um the, uh, the like, the Muppets. Oh, the Muppets. I can't believe I forgot <laughs> yeah. the Muppets. How could I forget that, Jill? Oh, I was going to say Kermit the Frog, but then I just thought about Animal, and I love him so yeah, much. Great. Oh, he's uh, good. I was definitely, like, a Lamb Chop fan back in my day PBS I, yeah. kids man. I liked PBS kids. Too. yeah I did too PBS kids that was a great question and this has been a great season of Woo-hoo. recording the podcast sure we has. are gonna take uh the month of June off because we have a lot of fun summer things going on at the library so go to kdl.org forward slash events to see what's happening at your branch in the months of June July and August because we have lots of things check out that carnival at Jill's Wyoming branch. Sign up um, to be a teen volunteer if you are a teen or know a teen. Yeah, and don't forget to catch every one of Tom Plunkert's magic shows. Yes. Or at least one. At least one. There's also Critter Barn. There's lots of activities for kids of all ages and adults. We've got programs for adults, too. And, of course, the reading program. Um, but we will be back in July with some new episodes. And we will see you then. What was your favorite part of the pod today? Favorite fact? That you learned today. Jill? I would say I love the old TV tech, basically lightsabers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just, I like you that. Know, that was my great, that was a great comparison. Yeah. I'm going to have to agree. That's, I'm just going to think yeah. of that now. Yeah. <laughs> Tiny lightsabers. I, yeah, I thought that was pretty good too. I personally, though, the manatee bots, I like the, the, the manatee The bus, double yeah. duty. No, no pun intended. <laughs> of of it also being a way to propel themselves around the water. That's yeah, great. There's some that uh, in this book. There's also an animal that talks using farts. Oh, oh also I'm not going to tell you great. which one. Yeah. Also, yeah. Full disclosure: I have not read the whole book, but Courtney told me about the manatees, and I that just warmed my and heart. I was like instantly, they <laughs> win. Them. I was like, I'll have to so? read the rest of it. Yeah. I'll let you. I'll let you borrow it. Thank you. It is a library book. Yeah, so check it out. <laughs> you don't have a choice. What about you, Courtney? What was your favorite? I think that yeah, the, all this, all the information about TVs and how far we've come in such a short amount of time. Yeah. Because we all use, we all have a TV. Well, most of us have a TV. Maybe not everyone has a TV, but we have some sort of screen mm-hmm. that we use to watch talking pictures. That's right. The, the talkies. Um, yes. Good times. All right. Well, that's uh, it for us today. Um, thank you for a great season of questions. And you can still submit your own questions or find out more information if you head to kdl.org forward slash stump. Um, yeah. And tune in after June for uh, us answering more questions. As always, a huge and special thank you to the KDL Service Center, which is where we're recording this podcast, the KDL Marketing Department, and J.D. Dolinsky for our intro music. Muppets and manatees. Bye. Bye.